Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Very nice. All right, well, good morning to the rest of you. Kind of a brisk, seasonal morning here. I actually wore my gloves out front this morning, so. Well, it's Advent, the uh, third Sunday, the third candle we lit this morning. And uh, the third candle is the Jubilate candle, the candle of joy. So that's what we want to think about. We sang a number of uh, songs this morning that brought that theme to us. Advent is the, uh, the idea of someone or something momentous that has arrived or is going to arrive. And so it's fitting that we celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus as a time of Advent. Well, we've, uh, we've been through a couple of these candles already. That's our Advent following uh, these themes. We talked about hope the first week. We said that hope is the confident expectation that God will fulfill all his promises even though current circumstances make that seem unlikely. And, uh, and so we looked at some of those Old Testament promises and, uh, and realized that even though it took hundreds of years to come to fulfillment, uh, yet those who had hope uh, were rewarded because they had that confidence in God's promises. And then last week, we looked at love, and we reminded ourselves that the central element of God's character is one that leads him to seek the best for creation in general, and specifically for human beings. That, that is fundamental to whom God is. That's, if you will, when you burrow down to the, the deepest element of God's character and being. God is love. And uh, once again, we looked at the Old Testament where that theme is repeated, but then comes to its focus in the birth of uh, the Lord Jesus. So John says, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Well, today is... uh, the theme of joy, and so I turned my hand to uh, try to get a a definition of that. How should we think about joy? And I would say it's something like this. It's the exaltation of spirit that comes from a life lived with God. We, uh, somebody up front quoted uh, Psalm 16 this morning, right? In your presence there is fullness of joy. So it's the exaltation of spirit that comes from a life lived with God, and hence it is commonly seen as the fruit or the result of salvation, because you and I don't have a life with God unless we're saved from the life that we've been born into in this world, a life separated from God. So joy and Salvation are themes that run together. 
Well, as we've done with the other previous two candles, again this week, what I want to do is pick up uh, a passage from the Old Testament, and we'll think about that a little bit, and then we'll see how that comes to focus and fulfillment in the story of Jesus. So, uh, two weeks ago, <clears throat> we looked at Isaiah chapter 51, verses 1 to 8, around the theme of hope, and I thought we'd just pick up uh, where we left off and talk about joy this morning. So, follow along here. Awake, awake, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Awake as in days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? Those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. That's some of the greatest poetry in the Old Testament, friends. Well, Isaiah doesn't tell us uh, when that's going to take place because he doesn't know when it's going to take place. But uh, seven centuries later, Dr. Luke tells us the story about the fulfillment. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. All right, so joy is a theme that runs through the biblical story. When you're with God, when you're in his presence, there's fullness of joy, the psalmist says. We... Uh, Maybe two months back, we talked a bit about the Psalms as the prayers that God has given to train us in how we're to pray, and we noted that, that about a third of those Psalms are laments. They are Psalms expressing grief and sadness. But it's interesting also, if you pull out a concordance and look up the word joy, that an awful lot of the occurrences of joy are also in the Psalms. 
So <clears throat> that's helpful to me. See, because on the one hand, we say living in this fallen world, there's always going to be grief. There's always going to be sadness. Some of you are here this morning and, and you feel more overtaken by sadness than by joy. And you can even be saying to yourself, I don't really feel like I belong here this morning. All right? Well, uh, take heart in this, <laughs> that the prayers that were given thousands of years ago to the people of God are prayers which give full acknowledgement of the reality of grief in our lives. But at the same time, they point us to God and they say, in God's presence there is fullness of joy. You know, God is not gloomy. I, I had some experiences growing up in the church where I was around some pretty gloomy people. And, and sometimes I thought maybe God was gloomy, but, but he's not. The God of the Bible is a God who is joyous. The angels of God who surround the throne in heaven are not gloomy. Right? So in the midst of the reality of grief and suffering in this world, we, we have this perspective that God is a God of joy, and, and we take the opportunity to celebrate that joy and to experience it ourselves. All right, so let's think a little bit about Isaiah. As we pointed out, Isaiah is a prophet of hope. In those verses just before the ones we read, Isaiah writes to these people in captivity in Babylon, in exile, and he says to them, uh, you know that land that you left, the land that was destroyed, the land that is almost empty, the land that's growing up in brambles because there's not enough people to cultivate the land anymore and wild animals are taking over, you know that desolation that's behind you? Well, a day is coming when it's going to bloom like the Garden of Eden again. And uh, it's going to be a place of beauty. It's going to be a place where creation flourishes, in, including the people of God. That's what's ahead. That's the hope that we have, says Isaiah. But as a prophet of hope, then, he's also the prophet of joy. In uh, Isaiah chapter 12, which is the end of that section that we call the book of Emmanuel, which talks about the coming of a child who will be uh, God with us. There's a joyous theme there. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And so in the chapter that we've just looked at here, joy is once again the theme. Why joy? Well, because Isaiah says it's, there's going to be a new exodus. You, you people are living in Babylon now. Remember how it was with your ancestors hundreds of years before. They were in Egypt for four centuries, and they were slaves. And 
and God came and delivered them. He sent Moses the prophet, and there were great judgments on the land of Egypt, and the people came out, and then Pharaoh changed his mind and chased after the people, and they were caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. And in their despair, they cried out to the Lord, and they prayed to him, and God opened a way through the sea. But now, says Isaiah, there's going to be a new exodus. Awake, awake, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Awake as in days gone by. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? Those the Lord has rescued will return. They will come to Zion with singing. You see what he's doing? He's uh, doing what we talked about under hope. You know, hope uh, looks to the future, but it keeps its eye in the rearview mirror to remember what God has done. And that's what Isaiah is doing here. He's saying, remember what happened with Moses in the Red Sea and how God made a way and triumphed over their enemies, well, that's going to happen again. Believe it or not, you're in Babylon. The mightiest empire in the world dominates you. You have no joy. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps on the willows, and our enemies said to us, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Grief, sadness. But the answer is, God is going to awaken his powerful arm of salvation and come, and Isaiah says, God's going to make a way back. You're going to come to Zion with singing. There's a, there's a beautiful uh, image here in verse 11. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Now, that that word overtaken, I was intrigued by it this week to see that, that the normal way that word is used is very negative. In other words, when you get overtaken, you're not often overtaken by good things. You're overtaken by the sword, by pestilence, by misfortune. In fact, Moses, after the deliverance at the Red Sea, uh, writes a song for the Israelites to sing. We call it the Song of Moses. Exodus chapter 15. Here's what they sang. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword, and my hand will destroy them. Well, that's, that's the customary use of 
overtake, right? It's negative. But Isaiah here turns it on its head. Because now in the coming deliverance that God will bring, they're going to be overtaken not by misfortune and sadness and grief and, the, and violence, but they're going to be overtaken by joy. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. That's a, that's a good way to be overtaken. So Isaiah has this extraordinarily hopeful and joy-producing vision of the future. God is going to show his strong right arm. He's going to bring deliverance to his people. And there's going to be joy and rejoicing where we can only imagine sadness and grief in the present. Well, how's that going to be fulfilled? When's it going to take place? Isaiah doesn't know. He just looks to the future. And 700 years go by. Think of that. About three times the length of the existence of the United States as a nation. That's That's a long time. But then Dr. Luke tells us about event, and he, and he talks about it from standpoint about 70 years later. He has <clears throat> researched the topic. He's talked to the people who were involved. And, and Dr. Luke talks to us about good news. It's, a, it's the word that often gets translated in the New Testament as gospel, Right? Good news. The angels appear to the shepherds in the field and they say, we have good news of great joy. And this is the news, that a child has been born who will save us. And this is good news for all the people. Now, when the shepherds heard all the people, they would naturally have understood it to be a reference to the Jewish people. All the Jewish people have received good news. But Dr. Luke, 70 years later, has seen something which uh, the Jewish people didn't comprehend, right? They did not expect. And that is that this good news would go out to non-Jews. And in fact, non-Jews would receive it and believe it more than the Jewish people themselves. This will be good news to all the people. A child has come who will save us, who will bring deliverance. Now, once again, think about it in the context. What's the deliverance? Well, it's the deliverance of a people oppressed who are no longer subject to the Babylonians. That's, that's gone, but they've been subject then to the Medes and the Persians and then to the Greek empire of Alexander the Great. And then currently they're suffering on, under the, the strong iron fist of the Roman Empire. 
So the deliverance they look for is, is in part a deliverance from oppression. But there's a, another and an even deeper sense in which they need deliverance. And that is they need, they need deliverance. They need salvation from their own sins. Because after all, they went to Babylon because they sinned against the Lord. They worshipped idols. And so they lost their right to be there. And that sin still marked them in, in many respects. And so the coming of this child would be a coming which would deliver them from their enemies and as Pogo used to say, we has met the enemy and they is us. We need deliverance ourselves. And this child will bring us salvation. Again, <clears throat> that's not explained how that's going to happen. That'll be another 30 years to the, the utter shock and even despair of those who have followed and believed in this child. Good news. There's a child coming who will save us, and this child, say the angels, is the Messiah, the Christ. And of course, that connects this whole story back to King David and the promise that, <clears throat> that David would never lack an heir to reign over the house of Israel. That, that one of his descendants would have a kingdom that would never end. The Messiah, <clears throat> you see the Hebrew letters there, Mashiach, just means the anointed one. That's what they did with their kings. They poured oil on their head to inaugurate them into the office. and So all of the kings were anointed. They were all messiahs to one, ex to, to one extent or another. <clears throat> but this term then came to be connected especially with David's coming heir. And they, they hadn't had a king for, you know, six centuries. But now this child is born and the angel comes to the shepherds and says... This one, this child who will bring salvation, is also David's heir. That's why in the story we read, there's a big point made of the fact that Joseph and Mary made a journey from Nazareth up in the north, about 65 miles, about three days walking journey, down to Bethlehem. Because there was a, a taxation levied at that time. And you had to pay your taxes in your ancestral home. Their ancestral home was Bethlehem, which, as the story says, is the hometown of King David. And they had to go there because they were in the family of David. Isn't it interesting how ancient peoples keep track of families for hundreds of years? I mean, David's a thousand years back at this time, they still know that they're part of David's family. I, I don't know back beyond four generations. 
But this is characteristic of ancient people. Lines of descent are very important. And this child, who's been born in Bethlehem, in uh, peasant circumstances, they know to be a distant descendant of the king. And this child, the good news is that this child will be Messiah who will reign over us. And understand that it's not just any kind of king reigning in any kind of way because many kings have not been particularly good for the people they reigned over. But this king is a king in the line of David. Remember, David, David is the shepherd king. He's the one who feeds and provides for and protects and leads the people of Israel just like he used to do out in the fields with the sheep. That's the kind of shepherd, the kind of king that you and I need. Every last one of us needs a king like that. And one of the big markers of contemporary Western culture is autonomy. You know what autonomy means, right? It means that you're the law for yourself. <clears throat> you decide who you want to be and what you want to do, and it's nobody else's business. The problem with that, of course, is that it's a disastrous way to live. And we, we see all around us the disaster that comes from that autonomous spirit. What I need, what all of us needs, is someone who can guide us and protect us and lead us and provide for us. We need that. We're created to be those kinds of people. And the good news is that that kind of shepherd king has come into the world. And in the midst of all of our problems and troubles, that's what, <clears throat> that's what we learn to rejoice in. That God has fulfilled his word. The long-standing promise, the thousand-year promise to King David, Luke says, has been fulfilled. This is the man born to be king. And then he adds one other thing here, that this is the Messiah, the Lord. The Lord. The word that he uses there is the same word that the, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses to refer to, to Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, the one living and true God. The angel says, this child here, this is Messiah, the Lord. What an extraordinary thing. It, it connects back, does it not, with, with Isaiah the prophet once again who, who prophesied that a 
a child would be born. A son given to us. And his name would be called Emmanuel. The with us God. Now, of course, I would imagine that Isaiah and all the people in those intervening 700 years who waited for the fulfillment, for the birth of this child, Emmanuel, I imagine they would have thought of that as simply, this child will be a sign that our God is with us. But this is another one of those titles, see, that takes on greater significance with the backward look. And now Luke, <clears throat> Luke can look back on this, and, and the followers of Jesus can look back on it and, and say, there, there's something more involved in this term, Emmanuel. It's not just that God has shown that he still cares for us, that he's still bringing salvation, that he's still with us in our journeying through the world. It's rather that this child who has been born is is nothing less than the maker of heaven and earth now appearing in the midst of us in this form of weakness and humility, this little child wrapped in claws and laying here in the manger. This is, at the same time, the God who spoke and brought the worlds into existence. This is extraordinary good news. God has entered into our world. He knows what it is to be sad, to grieve, to experience hardship. He understands because He is the God who has been and is with us in the child who is the Messiah. In fact, the prophet actually says of him that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But the one who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief is also the one who dwelt in the presence of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and who knew and knows that in God's presence there is fullness of joy. So even as he was ready to go to the cross, he prayed for his disciples and he said, Father, I pray that my joy might be in them. And then he went out to the garden and prayed to his father with strong crying and tears. Do do you see how that works together? That, That joy and sorrow and grief don't simply cancel each other out. 
that to have joy, you can't have any grief in your life. Or that you have grief in your life, and therefore you can't have joy. That's not, that's not a biblical way of thinking. Our master, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, understood that. This morning, we're uh, going to be celebrating communion. And in communion, we focus not on the birth of Christ primarily, but we focus on the other end of his earthly life, the cross. So I was uh, thinking about this verse just this week. It says that for the joy set before him, the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus lived in joy, and he looked forward to more joy. And because he focused on the joy before him, and you know what that was, huh? The joy set before him? The joy set before him was to return to his father's house and to have you and me join him there. The hope is of the great family reunion when we will sit down at table together we've had that icon picture before us haven't we father son and the spirit with that open place at the table so so jesus could say that in a coming day we would sit down with abraham isaac and jacob in the kingdom of god And Jesus looked forward to this. To not only sitting with those three great people, but sitting there with you. He looked forward to that with such anticipation that he said yes to the cross. Yes to his Father's will. He laid down his life for us because he loved and because he sought joy. And he found joy even in the midst of his sufferings because he had that focus. Well, so we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to ask uh, Jesse to come up in uh, just a minute and, and lead us in that. But let's take just this moment and, you know, ask ourselves the questions. Uh, am I living in a way that I can see joy? Even though the reality is I have sufferings. I have things that grieve me. But am I a person focused on Jesus? 
This uh, section in Hebrews says, consider him. Think about him. And am I a person of faith? Have I, have I received for myself and believed that there really is good news? That God has really come into our world. That he's really given his life to save me from my sins. To bring me into a place where joy and gladness will overtake me. Do I really believe that? Do you believe that? Have you said yes to God's Son? If not, then, you know, this, this would be a great day to do that. Jesse, would you come and lead us as we continue our reflections? <clears throat> I might say, if, if you are here and, and you're not, you know, you're not sure that you're really a believer or a follower, then you might want to just... Uh, as we take communion, you might just want to sit and observe and think about what we're doing because we're symbolizing to ourselves that we're the people who really believe, who have really taken Christ into our lives.